Welcome to the return of the Primal Endurance Podcast. This is your host, Brad Kearns, and we are going on a journey to a kinder, gentler, smarter, more fun, more effective way to train for ambitious endurance goals. Visit primalendurance.fit to join the community and enroll in our free video course. Greetings, my fitness-minded listeners. I want to acquaint you with the Primal Fitness Expert Certification Program, the most comprehensive home study multimedia fitness education course in the world. If you want to enhance your personal knowledge of all aspects of leading a healthy, active, fit lifestyle, this total immersion course will be life-changing. I'm the lead instructor and author of the course, and we have 14 chapters of extensive written content with over 100 accompanying videos covering topics such as general everyday movement, including micro-workouts and dynamic workstation tips, the full experience of gym-based strength training and all the different modalities, a complete presentation on all aspects of sprinting, both running and low-impact options, an assortment of high-intensity interval training and high-intensity repeat training strategies, a detailed education on the principles and practical application of aerobic endurance training, and extensive commentary, the most you will find in any publication, on all aspects and symptoms of overtraining and burnout. We even have fascinating peripheral topics like integrating nasal diaphragmatic breathing, dynamic stretching, injury prevention, and developing a peak performance mindset. It's really something, this course. We went all out for over two years with a great team to develop this amazing home-based fitness education for you. And you get one-on-one expert email support and private Facebook group connection throughout your studies to ensure that you absorb everything optimally and you pass your series of exams and get certified. So go to primalhealthcoach.com slash Brad to enjoy a very special limited time. And I'm not kidding. This is a big time discount just for you. 25% off your tuition. A fantastic premium offer at primalhealthcoach.com slash Brad for the most comprehensive fitness course you can ever find. Hello, listeners. It is time. It's been a long time coming for another episode of Q&A on the Primal Endurance Podcast. You know, we had that long break uh, going back to 2019 when the show went dark for a while. We're coming back with a vengeance. We've had some great guests and some great series of informational podcasts. And now it's time to dig into quite a long list of very interesting and I think helpful questions for everyone out there fighting that battle, trying to get better, trying to do it the right way, preserve health and enjoy the process along the way. So we're going to start with Heather. Um, She says, I'm a relatively new endurance athlete. My first event was 2018, which was a full Ironman triathlon. Hey, welcome to triathlon. Guess what? There's shorter events out there, but hey, nice, nice way to get on the board. That reminds me of my friend Martin Bronze, former podcast guest on the B-Rad podcast, his first triathlon that he ever participated in was the Ultraman in Hawaii. (laughs) Can you believe that? He was out there serving as a crew member uh, for his friend Vito Bialy, a multi-time finisher of the Ultraman, and he was so inspired by it. He says, you know what, I'm going to do this. And he went back the next year or maybe another year later and did the extreme, grueling Ultraman. It's a three-day triathlon held on the big island of Hawaii. 
and the first day is a six mile swim and a 90 mile bike. The second day is a 170 mile bike ride. And the third day is a double marathon, 52 mile run. Yeah, his first triathlon ever. So Heather doing her first triathlon Ironman in 2018. Since then, I've completed 50K, um, a, a virtual solo 40 mile run, a solo 100K run. Wow, I didn't know uh, they had so many of those virtual runs. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> That's a good effort to go out there and do it by yourself and then have that online connection. It must be kind of fun when you finish to go and upload your data. I'm really fascinated by the low heart rate approach, says Heather. I have not been getting any faster running at my usual heart rate zones in my usual training, so I want to be able to do something that will help me reach my athletic potential. I've been exploring low heart rate training, but have not been able to consistently stick with it for several reasons. Hey, thanks for pouring your heart out here, Heather, because um, it is a tough thing to stick with uh, because you're forced to go a lot slower than you uh, feel like is comfortable and that you're comfortably capable of. But the payoff comes down the line as you are training your aerobic system rather than a mix of aerobic and anaerobic. So here's why Heather is not able to stick with it. First, my heart rate seems disconnected from my perceived exertion. That is, I feel fine cardiovascularly, I'm nasal breathing, I'm at a conversational pace, but my heart rate might be 5 to 10 beats above what is my maximum aerobic calculation of 180 minus age. Question, do some people's hearts just run faster? No pun intended. If this is the case, can I train by perceived exertion of what feels easy as opposed to this strict heart rate? <sighs> Guess what? I mean, Phil Maffetone, his life's work, emphasizes this point so strongly that we have to go by the calculation. We cannot inch up there and get permission for one reason or another to bump up our math heart rate by five or 10 beats, except for his very delineated uh, question and answer where you're allowed to add five or subtract five or subtract 10 if you have certain circumstances. And the subtractions are for people that have been frequently sick, injured, are novices. If you're on prescription medication, he wants you to subtract 10 from your 180 minus age rate. And then the ad, the all precious ad five are for those who have been uh, excelling without injury or interruption, great competitive results. There is some uh, hall pass for the older athletes, like people in my age group, where pretty soon your cardiovascular function is not declining at the same rate as your uh, annual years. And so even at age 58, where my maximum aerobic heart rate would be 122, I typically run uh, five beats faster than that, uh, comfortably so. Now, um, this perceived exertion is such a fluid notion, and it's influenced by so many things that it's much, much better to honor this math heart rate training protocol of 180 minus age and keep your heart rate at that comfortable zone, even though it feels extremely comfortable and even though you feel just fine if it creeps up by five or 10 beats. And I say this from years of experience that if you go out there and you run a little bit over your maximum aerobic heart rate on a regular basis for years and years, months and months, whatever, you're not going to improve as reliably or as consistently as if you really take care of your aerobic system in training. Now, what is the maximum aerobic function heart rate that 180 minus age calculation representing of in, in laboratory speak? Guess what? That is the point of maximum fat 
oxidation per minute. So you are burning the highest rate of fat at your maximum aerobic heart rate. And if you were to speed up, if you were to increase your heart rate, of course you would be burning more calories per minute all the way up to running tempo or running sprint theoretically. But as soon as you leave that maximum aerobic number, you start to bring in glucose burning into the equation. And that's not what we want as our foundation for endurance athletes. So you want to burn the most fat possible per minute. That's what happens at your maximum aerobic heart rate. Second, this is back to Heather's uh, reasons. I'm training uh, for 100-mile runs. This usually requires lots of training miles. Since I'm a slower athlete, I'm running 12 or 13-minute miles. And so if I have to slow down further to accommodate low heart rate training, this might mean I'm going to 14-minute mile. There's not enough hours in the day for me to fulfill life obligations, run this slowly, and get in the miles prescribed on my training plan. How does a slower athlete strike a balance between running the miles necessary and running at the pace uh, necessary for aerobic improvement? Well, here's the thing. Your brain and your body do not have any notion of miles. They only uh, have the, uh, the association with time spent exercising. Get the difference? So if you're training for a long-distance race, um, you're going to be doing two-hour runs, three-hour runs, one-hour runs, 30-minute runs. And so it's much better and more sensible to uh, track your training by duration rather than the number of miles. Uh, similarly, if I dropped you off at the top of a paved road at a slight gentle grade of 4% and had you run 10 miles downhill on that nice straight paved road, uh, that would be a lot easier than doing a 10-mile trail ascent where you're gaining 1,700 feet on the 10-mile course. So it's completely irrelevant how many miles you're running, and it's vastly more relevant how many hours you are running and at what heart rate. So if you're at altitude, if it's hot weather, if it's a difficult trail, all these things will be reflected in the heart rate that you're running at. So I would strongly urge everyone listening to reject the obsession with pace per mile and just train according to your heart rate and according to the desired duration of your workouts. Now, when you get into a race, of course, you're training for the Boston Marathon for eight months and you're running on trails and you're running in different cities when you're traveling. It's hot, it's cold, it's whatever. And on race day, of course, you're going to set a goal and try to keep a certain pace and, a, and, and finish in a certain time. But that's what races are for. The rest of it is training. Okay, I think I made my point there where we want to get you out of this uh, thinking that is so common. And as she writes in her question, my prescribed training plan. So someone or something is telling her that to prepare for a 100-mile run, you need to get in some 35-mile training runs. Nonsense. You need to get in some long hours in training. But again, if I dropped you off at the top of the paved road at a 4% grade and had you run 35 miles downhill, that's a lot different than doing the trail run. So if you can get in the quote-unquote five-hour training session and two four-hour training sessions and four three-hour training sessions or whatever protocol you're following, hopefully from an expert and not just from a magazine or an internet resource. But really, I like to simplify this and I spend a lot of time and energy uh, in the online course and in the book saying, look, um, what you want to focus on is key workouts or as Mark Sisson has called them for many years, breakthrough workouts. So you have this baseline level of training and conditioning and practicing 
in your chosen events, in your chosen sports. And then once in a while, you want to challenge the body to a peak performance effort that stimulates a fitness improvement. So this would be running for longer duration than you have before, or this would be going uh, in a tempo or a track workout where you're trying to hit a certain time that might be better than your last one. These key workouts or breakthrough workouts uh, prompt a fitness improvement because they challenge the body to perform beyond the typical level of the day in, day in, day in, day out training patterns. So if you want to envision every workout in one of three boxes, it's the key workouts, the big challenging ones. It's the maintenance workouts or break even workouts, as Mark Sisson has called them, or it's a recovery workout, which is a workout that's specifically designed to be extremely minimally stressful, and it will help you bounce back from the workouts where you really challenge your body and your musculoskeletal system and so forth. Okay, so um, a slower athlete strikes that balance by counting hours instead of miles. And on the first part of the question, as I emphasized a lot, uh, can I add some more beats? No, you cannot. <laughs> and third, here we go. It seems that the slower pace results in greater force applied when I run uh, and I have more joint discomfort than I normally have, uh, assuming running at higher speeds. Uh, I still feel compelled to try and run, even though it's painfully slow. I think it changes my form. Should someone like me opt for fast walking until improvements in my aerobic fitness allow for a jogging pace that does not compromise form? Thank you so much. I love the Primal Endurance Podcast. Da, 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 da. Uh, that's an interesting point Heather makes at the end. And I've heard this, uh, I've received uh, many comments on my YouTube video, uh, the Brad Kern's running technique instruction. It's the viral video. It's got 2.2 million views. Thank you very much, YouTube world, algorithm, whatever, how so many people saw it, I don't know. I'd love to have more of those going up there to the 2 million views. Uh, but I talk about running technique and I make the point in the video that these technique attributes apply at all running speeds, from sprinting all the way down to jogging. You still want to maximize the uh, flexibility and the uh, the uh, force production potential of the ankle joint uh, when you're running even at a slow speed. So you're not shuffling your feet along with what I call lazy foot. You're dorsiflexing that foot as soon as it leaves the ground and you're getting that Achilles tendon into the mix to provide some forward propulsion, even if you're jogging 10 minute mile or 13 minute mile. And occasionally I hear from people saying that it hurts more to run with this uh, supposedly correct technique uh, and they like shuffling better. And so um, it, when you're running slower and you contend that it's more difficult for the musculoskeletal system, this can be uh, pretty easily countered if you were to run on a force plate. That's a laboratory that determines uh, how much impact force is happening with each stride. You would notice that the slower you go, the less impact with each stride, obviously. So the slower you go, you're going to have less impact on the muscles, joints, connective tissue. That's just uh, physics right there. And so if it feels funny, it's probably because you're just not used to it. And I also contend that if you use the foot and the Achilles tendon properly by dorsiflexing the foot throughout the stride pattern and making that circular, that bicycle motion that I describe on the video, that is the most efficient way for the human to run with the least impact trauma, even less so than the shuffling stride that you see with a lot of long distance runners. So I'm gonna reject all the uh, counter arguments saying that it feels better to shuffle along. That's an inefficient use of the 
uh, all the muscles and joints and Achilles tendon. And guess what? Your hip flexors are still going to go at mile 20 when you shuffle the first 20 miles rather than run correctly. So there's no way around it except to exhibit the most precise and optimal technique that you can at all running speeds. Now, Heather brings in that other wrinkle where it says, should I opt for fast walking until improvements in my aerobic fitness allow for a jogging pace? And that's not a bad idea because again, we're going by heart rate. So if you are heading up toward your maximum aerobic heart rate with a fast walk, that is an outstanding training session. There is no need to jog unless you get fit enough to jog comfortably. And I've uh, shut down some of the contention here, but I also want to acknowledge that I know how it feels funny to jog really, really slowly in the name of keeping your heart rate steady. So maybe you would prefer a fast walk and build your fitness that way. It will not be long until you can break into a comfortable jog instead of what feels like a lame jog because your heart watch is beeping. And I've talked about this so much over the years of shows on this podcast, but I just want to emphasize one more time, when you feel frustrated about limiting your effort to your maximum aerobic heart rate, please reference the example of the great elite athletes of the world, like a marathon runner, Elliot Kipchoge, maybe the greatest endurance athlete of all time, up there with Lance Armstrong and some of the other luminaries, but the greatest marathoner of all time, for sure. Um, on his easy day, he runs, I believe it's 18 miles at a six minute pace at high altitude, <laughs> which by most uh, all mere mortal standards and even uh, many elite athletes, that's not an easy day. That's a very impressive workout. But we have to unwind this a little bit and realize that his easy pace of six minute mile is a minute and a half slower than his marathon race pace when he runs 159, running around four minutes, 32 seconds a mile. So he is running comfortably well below his maximum aerobic heart rate at a six-minute mile. Holy crap, go try to run a six-minute mile. It feels like a sprint to me, and I'm in pretty good shape, but that is actually moving quite impressively. But the reference and the uh, analogy that we have to draw here is that a six-minute mile to him, a minute and a half slower than his marathon race pace, what's a minute and a half slower than your marathon race pace? Is it an 11.30? Is it a 14.30? Is it a 16-minute mile? Is it a 10-minute mile if you're a badass and you can run a marathon at 8.30 pace? That's the reference point we have to think about and the stress impact on the body of our easy workouts and our aerobic heart rate training runs. So if you're frustrated at a brisk walk, that is exactly the same training stimulus as a six-minute mile at high altitude for Kipchoge. So we don't want you to cross over into this training pattern where you are routinely exceeding your maximum aerobic heart rate because it's so easy to run at that pace. You're training harder than freaking Kipchoge because he rarely exceeds that 80% level of effort. And you can read great articles about his training log, which he has posted for all to examine on the internet. And the exercise physiologists have gone to town and tried to calculate out everything and compare everything so you can realize that 80% exertion is what the great elite runners of the world are doing. There's certainly no justification for you to push yourself relatively harder than an elite athlete. And there is tons of justification for you to back off a bit or a lot 
from the model presented by the elite athletes because you probably have job, family, personal responsibilities, a more hectic and more stressful lifestyle than an elite athlete who is training and eating and sleeping. Okay, I hope I've emphasized the point enough here how important it is to take care of your body and limit your efforts to the aerobic zone when that is the intended effect of the workout. So uh, exchange email with Heather, and as I uh, spoke the answer here, uh, she got the answer by email, and she says, oh my gosh, thank you, this information is so reassuring. I've been stuck in the kill yourself to improve approach for so long. It's hard to go outside of that comfort zone, especially as a type A, like so many of us are. Trust the process and be patient. We'll need to be the new model. I knew scientifically that it didn't make much sense that running more slowly could be causing problems. I just got back from a run and felt much smoother this time around. I'm looking forward to checking out your instruction video and refining some technique. We'll have that link in the show notes, or just remember to go to YouTube and type in Brad Kern's running technique instruction. I think you're going to love this video. Very helpful. Um, I had no idea such a resource existed. Okay, now we go to uh, another um, entire can of worms opening, and it happens that it still came from the prolific Heather, but now she's going into diet. Look at all this free coaching she got from writing into the show. I love it, man. Um, uh, I'm Heather, who previously wrote about low heart rate training for longer events. Now I've gone all in on this whole scene about uh, keto endurance training, and I'm in the ketogenic diet. I like the lifestyle. I eat when I'm hungry, which is far less often, and I don't eat when I'm not hungry. My debilitating sugar cravings are drastically reduced. It's very freeing. Now, uh, before we go into her complaint or her concern about her transition to keto, I want to set the stage properly and realize that if you're in that carbohydrate dependency model where she admittedly was training at a uh, slightly higher heart rate than maximum aerobic, so she was stimulating glucose burning, and that was very likely leaking into her dietary habits. As most endurance athletes know, you go out there, you burn a lot of calories, <laughs> some of them sugar, you come home, and you got that free pass to enjoy and indulge and have uh, carbohydrate cravings, sugar cravings. So now reducing those sugar cravings suggests that she's um, achieved a certain level of metabolic flexibility and fat adaptation so she doesn't continually have to live on doses of sugar. So indeed, that is very freeing as she says. But I want to highlight that this transition over into keto is a departure from carbohydrate dependency. Then we have to sit back a little bit and look at long-term, big picture, best options and best interests for the individual and see if this is something that's sustainable or is it just a transition point where she can optimize carbohydrate intake without worrying about staying at that very low ketogenic level, especially as an endurance athlete, but just go according to um, the, the optimal level of nutritious carbs in the diet and avoid some of the fallout and problems that come from an overly stressful approach to life and keto endurance training in general, because keto by definition is stressful and so is endurance training. And so here's Heather's complaint, as I've teed it up properly. My resting heart rate has raised almost 15 beats since I reduced carbohydrate intake in my diet. It's high all day when I'm eating uh, 30 to 35 net carbs a day. Now, is this a side effect of ketosis? Is it common? Is it something that goes away 
when I become fat adapted. Uh, I always thought that my low resting heart rate seemed like a badge of honor as an athlete. And as silly as it sounds, I measure my fitness by it. No, that's not silly at all. And a resting uh, heart rate indicates a strong cardiovascular system. And seeing um, a trending of lower on the resting heart rate means that you're getting in better shape, uh, generally speaking. If your heart rate's elevated 15 beats, this could imply that you are overstimulating the fight or flight response, which is associated with elevated heart rate. And so you're in a chronically stressful state because you are endurance training and trying to adhere to that extremely low carbohydrate intake uh, where she says 30 to 35 net carbs a day. So this is an undesirable response to a ketogenic diet. And my immediate advice would be uh, try to experiment with optimal carbohydrate intake by bringing back in uh, nutritious, easy to digest carbohydrates. And as you may have learned from the carnivore scores food rankings chart that you can download for free at bradkearns.com, uh, there are carbohydrates that are offering minimal nutrition and more difficulty to digest. And there are those that are nutritious and easy to digest. And the centerpiece there is fruit. Um, one of the great foods of human evolution for millions of years. And somehow it's become marginalized in modern times as people make this blanket effort to uh, lower their carbohydrate intake and feel better. That's the promise of keto and other low-carb diets. <laughs> Many of those which I've uh, touted enthusiastically and written books about. So I don't want to be uh, here saying that I've completely um, turned the corner and don't see any value or benefit from low-carb or keto. But I think the main benefit is getting rid of processed carbohydrates that are difficult to digest and interfere with your body's ability to burn energy internally. And that would be everything in the, uh, the grains and legumes family, which so many people are highly sensitive to. And also, as we know from the emergence of the carnivore diet movement, that includes the uh, often uh, commonly uh, lauded categories of roots, seeds, stems, and leaves. So things like nuts and seeds, which have so many nutritional value, so much nutritional value. My macadamia nut butter can potentially be problematic if someone has trouble uh, digesting uh, those particular foods, which many people do have nut allergies, as we know. Um, and the, the the root seeds, stems, and leaves are the stems and leaves are the four categories. So you're also talking about things like your kale smoothie and your salad and your stir fry. And many of the lauded superfoods of the plant kingdom can be potentially problematic, especially when they're consumed in raw form, which is the most difficult to digest. So it's something worth examining for people when they are slamming those kale smoothies in the name of health. Now, if someone like Heather were to um, experiment with increasing carbohydrate intake, I'd rather see it coming from uh, fresh fruit. Uh, the easy-to-digest tubers like sweet potatoes and those in that category. White rice is often touted as one of the easier-to-digest carbohydrates with extremely minimal uh, anti-nutrient concerns, unlike the foods in the categories of roots, seeds, stems, and leaves, the kale smoothies, the salads, uh, nuts and seeds, things like that. So you can try for some sweet potatoes, lots of fruit intake, perhaps even dried fruit. Jay Feldman, my frequent guest on the BRAD podcast, the Energy Balance podcast host, he says orange juice is okay, especially for athletes. So it's an awakening to think that you can strive for optimal by adding back uh, an appropriate level 
of nutritious carbohydrates, especially if you're out there burning calories in hard training. And the elevation of resting heart rate from combining keto and endurance training is a red flag that you are stressing the body too much. So again, look at your overall stress scoreboard in life. Even get out a piece of paper and write on one side um, stressors, and on the other side, you can uh, write rest, rejuvenation, recovery, sleep. And of course, you have your evening block of sleep. You have your times when you are disciplined enough to put away your technology and engage with nature, uh, watching the birds, <laughs> writing down in your bird watching journal what kind of bird you just saw, things that are relaxing and nourishing, taking a bath in the evening, all that kind of fun stuff goes on one side of the balance scale. And then you're going to see a lot of things on the other side of the balance scale. And you have to write ketogenic diet in there. You have to write endurance training in there. In contrast, if you were to try and optimize carb intake and if refuel yourself optimally uh, as soon as you're finished exercising, then the diet becomes a way to rest, repair, recover, and rejuvenate. You see the difference here? So deliberately restricting carbohydrates to get the, uh, the promised health benefits of ketogenic diet, these health benefits come from the stress mechanisms that are kicked into gear when you go keto. One of the main ones, of course, is reducing excess body fat. So if you've been in an existence of overfeeding and under-exercising especially, or carrying excess body fat due to overfeeding even if you exercise a lot, and you start to restrict your caloric intake by any means necessary, by any strategy you desire, you are going to get that health benefit of improving your metabolic markers and dropping excess body fat. So that's an all-around huge win. But then it comes time to look at long-term optimization. You want to get the extra fat off your body. That's mostly and best achieved by eliminating processed foods. And then we can decide, hey, as an athlete, I have competitive goals. I want to recover and I want to optimize intake of nutritious carbohydrates and very good suggestion to continue to uh, discard the processed carbohydrates that are difficult to digest. So that's a lot of the sugars and uh, exotic Starbucks cocktails and the um, you know reaching for the treats because you did so much training. There's no call for that, especially in a hard training, high performing endurance athlete, because we have greater needs for performance and recovery and nutritional density than someone who's not asking a lot from their body. All right. Well, that was a good half hour just on Heather. Awesome, Heather. Thanks a lot. Now we go to Stacy Clark. I've been reading your Primal Endurance book. I'm 59 years old, and I love your advice for the more seasoned athletes out there. I've run a few races over the last 20 years, uh, not in a while. The last one was the 10-mile or the half marathon in Virginia Beach six years ago. Now I got another one coming up. I currently run a few times a week in my Vibrams and watch my heart rate staying around 120, 121. So that's appropriate for someone who's almost 60. I'm also doing some micro workouts throughout the day, like push-ups every time I go upstairs so I can get an angled push-up, you know, on the, on the first steps. I also do 20 squats three to four times a day. What an awesome regimen. Congratulations, Stacy. I'm also pretty much eating two meals a day and low carb. I also do strength training with weights and I exercise uh, with a bar and a band once a week. Here are my questions. Should I do any uh, targeting or progression runs or high intensity repeat training once a week? If my max heart rate for endurance exercise is 180 minus age, 
what should my heart rate look like during a high intensity workout, like a hurt session, high intensity repeat training? I'm not an elite athlete. I find that signing up for a race helps motivate me and take care of myself and also being low carb and running in my Vibrams, my knees no longer hurt. So this is someone who has adapted over time to running in minimalist shoes and getting the most out of their feet, getting great strengthening effect on their feet, but doing it the right way and not inviting that injury risk that Vibram got in so much trouble for and got class action lawsuit because someone said, I wore these and I got injured. It was kind of ridiculous, but it did illustrate a good point that the minimalist footwear is uh, so beneficial in so many ways, but you want to ease into it, especially when it comes to using them during exercise. But the best way to ease into it is to go to paluva.com right now, P-E-L-U-V-A, and check out Mark Sisson's awesome new company that he recently founded with his son, Kyle. And they are kicking some ass, putting out these really fashionable, stylish, minimalist shoes with the articulated uh, five different slots for the toes, just like the Vibram. But these have a little bit of extra padding. They're a little more designed for uh, multi-purpose, functional, safe use. And I absolutely love my pair. I've been running in them, sprinting in them, uh, going out to fashionable uh, establishments in Las Vegas. They're really cool. I think you're going to like them. And um, that's a nice little plug there for what Mark's been up to in his longtime fascination with minimalist footwear. So good luck with your, uh, your efforts there, Stacy. And now let's get to the questions. I'm so excited to introduce you to Paluva. This is a new zero-drop minimalist shoe with the distinctive five-toe design from my main man, Mark Sisson. Paluvas give you the most authentic barefoot-style experience, but with sufficient cushioning so you can use them for all manner of daily movement, especially walking and many other fitness and athletic activities. Paluvas are also incredibly stylish, so you get a barefoot shoe that you're not embarrassed to wear around in daily life. It's been so cool to see the popularity of minimalist shoes grow over the recent years, but Paluvas are a step ahead of every other zero-drop wide-box shoe because of the critical feature of individual five-toe articulation, a separate slot for each of your toes. This allows for correct dynamic movement of the foot through the walking or running stride, which is impossible when your toes are encased into a single box, even a wide box. Well, you might know that minimalist shoes have faced controversy in recent years for causing injuries from inappropriate use. So here is the big picture mission. We want to get you walking in paluvas, living in your paluvas, going barefoot in your home or other safe areas as often as possible. Go ahead and use your specialized cushiony running shoes or your basketball shoes, work boots, high heels, things that you want to wear when you want to wear them, but wear your Paluvas as much as possible to reawaken the natural functionality of the human foot to stand, walk, run, and perform. Do you want to try a pair? I'm certain that when you put them on and walk around, you are going to quickly realize that these are the most comfortable, natural shoes that you've ever worn. They are designed to feel like you're, quote, walking barefoot on a putting green. Please visit paluva.com, that's P-E-L-U-V-A, and use the code BRADPODCAST and get 10% off your first pair. Paluvas, let your feet be feet. Um, should I do any uh, faster runs uh, or, or, or just once a week do a sprint workout? 
And this is all, you know, based on the relative importance of the distinct goals that you have set. So most listening here have some form of goal, probably an endurance event based on the name of the podcast. And if you're training for an extreme endurance event, like a half marathon coming up, like Stacy writes, of course, your most bang for your buck, the most return on investment is going to come from over distance aerobic workouts. And then some icing on the cake once in a while could be a high intensity repeat session, like a sprint workout. But you just definitely want to increase your competency at the aerobic heart rates and perform and recover from those challenging workouts where you're going over distance, you're trying to ex- extend the time of your workout and put most of your energy into that. Because if you think about it, you're going to do some baseline exercises of whatever you're running for 30 to 45 minutes. Then you're going to challenge yourself by going long once in a while. And then you're going to be recovering from those longer distance runs and then gearing up for another long distance run coming up in the future. And so trying to sprinkle in a lot of high intensity effort there when your stated goal is a half marathon is not necessary. But we also get people who have an assortment of goals and want to have overall broad-based fitness competency. It's so cool now that the hybrid athlete is coming into vogue and these sensations on YouTube who are doing these combination efforts like deadlifting 500 pounds and then going and running a five-minute mile immediately after. So amazing. Um, Fergus Crawley, I met this guy over at the Mark Bell podcast. He had flown in from England and uh, he's had some amazing like double Ironman performance and deadlifting 600 pounds or some crazy stuff, you know, in the morning, he'll go in the gym, do his warm up, deadlift an incredible weight, and then go run 50 kilometers, you know? So, um, the hybrid athlete is what it's called, where they're showing competency in extreme, uh, strength and power, as well as endurance. Mark Bell, how can you get a better example than that? Uh, a record setting professional power lifter when he weighed in at 330 pounds and was squatting a thousand pounds or something. And now he's about to uh, participate in his first Boston Marathon, an amazing transition from giant power lifter to uh, competent endurance runner. Yeah. So do whatever you want is the answer, Stacy. But for someone with generalized fitness goals, they're not going for the podium in their endurance event. Hey, just get out there and uh, try to become competent at sprinting as well. As the old uh, primal blueprint fitness pyramid indicated, um, our, our genes are best served by the uh, ancestral style behaviors that give us broad-based fitness competency. And that is a mix of frequent general everyday movement, including aerobic activity, including formal uh, cardiovascular sessions in the aerobic heart rate, and then uh, regular lifting of heavy things, strength training, resistance training, and then sprinting uh, occasionally once a week is plenty. But you do want to get competent at sprinting. I think it's one of the quintessential human activities and has so many health benefits, longevity benefits, peak performance benefits, even um, cognitive benefits have been shown associated with sprinting. And it also gets you better, more competent at all lower levels of exercise intensity. So if you can put out some real power and exhibit some good technique while sprinting, you are going to become a better endurance runner because you're activating all the same energy systems and teaching your central nervous system to fire efficiently under extreme demand. So when you go jogging down the street, you'll become more competent from running faster once in a while. Okay, Um, thank you for writing in. And now we talk to Ryan Baxter, who's been 
a guest on the show and a guest on the BRAD podcast. He's got great content. He's a primal health coach in New England and an engineer by trade. And he's done some amazing quantifiable experiments with his training, with his diet uh, that everyone can reference for our benefit. And I think the most profound one was his experiment with, as I've been experimenting with, striving for uh, maximum cellular energy status at all times. So transitioning away from a devotion to fasting or low carb or keto and going for uh, a good sensible intake of nutritious foods to fuel his performance and recovery goals. So what he did for all of our benefit was he performed a careful experiment where this guy has written down everything he's eaten for years and all the macronutrients, put everything into the app so he knows his average daily caloric intake and his carbs and his protein and fat. And then he went on and embarked upon an experiment lasting one year where he consumed an additional 700 calories per day in additional nutritious calories. That includes more carbs, more protein, more everything. And he carefully tracked this. And at the end of one year of stuffing his face extra to the tune of 700 calories a day, which is no joke, he had the same body weight and the same body composition, almost exactly the same. He, was, he had gained a quarter pound or lost a quarter pound or something, but essentially nothing had changed. And so it begs the question, where did all those extra calories go to? And arguably, they went to improved performance and recovery so that he could get fitter, uh, lift more weight, run faster, perform better, without bringing in that extra stress factor of restricting caloric intake in the name of health benefits. So those of us who are putting out a lot of energy into our training protocols, we want to make sure that we're getting enough nourishment to perform and recover optimally. And I'm super excited about what I believe is uh, yet another uh, a breakthrough or progression in the message and the ancestral health movement, the progressive health movement in general, where we see these benefits, these tools for what they are, the fasting, the keto, the carb restriction, we see them for what they are, but we have to zoom out, look at the big picture, and realize that these are just tools to achieve a desired benefit, and oftentimes that desired benefit is to extricate oneself from the unfettered access to indulgent foods that we see in modern life. Dr. Lane Norton makes an excellent case that all metabolic problems can be attributed to energy toxicity. And energy toxicity is simply consuming too much energy and not burning enough. So we have the sedentary patterns of modern life, and we have our ability to indulge in foods day and night with the click of a button without having to make any effort. And he goes way out onto the extreme where he doesn't even uh, you know, distinguish or have a tremendous concern on uh, you know, the, the quality of the diet or which food you cut back on. He just says, cut your calories and you'll get healthier because you're going to lose weight and improve your metabolic markers. And that is a true statement. There's just so much complexity here about what's sustainable, what's possible. And I think a lot of the benefit of the ketogenic diet is that it's easy to adhere to because you do curb your hunger because you're not spiking blood sugar. And generally, you're going to find a lot of nutritious foods when you go keto because you're going to be emphasizing uh, the great animal superstar nutrient-dense foods like red meat, like eggs, like oily cold water fish, and so forth. So um, what I'm trying to get to here is to 
not get too uh, muddled in the waters and realize the objective of some of the health practices that you're undergoing. So if you make a dietary change and now you're going to go keto and measure your carbs, or now you're going to do intermittent fasting and only eat in that eight-hour window of time between 12 noon and 8 p.m., all those things are helping you extricate from previous patterns that were health-destructive or at least less healthy than your new practice. But then when the smoke clears, we have to realize that these are stressful practices. So fasting, you kick into all these wonderful immune cell repair benefits, but it nevertheless is a stressor to the body, just like restricting carbs uh, greatly with keto. And so what Ryan was uh, showing with this quantified experiment and what I'm showing from my non-quantified experiment, but still enthusiastically consuming way more carbs, way more fruit, way significantly more calories every day. I don't know if it's up at 700, but I went on a devoted effort starting in May of 2022 after I was exposed to the message from Jay Feldman, Energy Balance Podcast, to try and cut back on fasting and eat more food. And now at this age, especially 58, going for uh, high performance in the decades ahead, I contend that I am entirely focused on performing and recovering and performing and recovering. And no less authority than Dr. Peter Atiyah, author of the uh, widely acclaimed new book, Outlive, about longevity and all the things contributing to it. He says that exercise is the single most powerful intervention to promote longevity than anything else. And nothing even comes close. No pharmaceutical, uh, not even a dietary modification. It's all about building and maintaining lean muscle mass and lean muscle strength throughout life, particularly when you look at the things that trip us up and send us to our demise. And tragically, the number one cause of demise and death in Americans over age 65 is falling. So that is a loss of muscle power, muscle strength, balance, coordination, fitness in general. And then when you fall, um, you oftentimes get bedridden. So then you get in worse shape and it's really hard to climb out of this hole, especially when you enter the senior decades. So those who can perform physical activity and are able to push their bodies and achieve fitness benefits will have the longest, most graceful, enjoyable lifespan. And that is supported by, as Jay might call it, uh, optimal cellular energy status. So you don't have to starve the cells of energy when you already challenge them through uh, devoted training sessions that are difficult and, and uh, push your body, whether it's resistance training, sprinting, or a lot of general everyday activity. Um, I also like the great point uh, delivered by Mike Mutzel on his popular YouTube video, uh, which is titled, Why I Stopped Fasting and What I'm Doing Instead, something along those lines for the title. And he cites research that uh, talking about fasting and all the benefits. Yes, indeed. If you fast for 48 hours, you get an outstanding autophagy benefit. That's the natural cellular internal detoxification process. The research from respected leaders in the fasting community like Dr. Walter Longo and David Sinclair, another longevity expert, they're talking about uh, the renewal and repair effects that occur through fasting or fasting mimicking diets as he calls them. And uh, the research shows that your organs will actually shrink in size after a 48-hour fast because they have shed the inflamed and damaged cellular material and will rebuild with healthy new cells 
prompted by the fasting session, which forces your body to become more efficient and uh, repair and recycle damaged cellular material in contrast to constantly overfeeding uh, that energy toxicity state where your cells divide more quickly and set the stage for increased cancer risk and things like that. So if you fast for 48 hours, you get these wonderful benefits. But then, as Mutzel goes on to say, and he's a high-performing athlete, former elite cyclist, and very much on the exercise fitness scene, as well as diet, he says, research reveals that you will get a similarly awesome, powerful autophagy benefit from doing an intense one-hour workout. And then he hits you with the punchline, which is, I don't know about you, but which one would you prefer? Fasting, starving yourself for 48 hours, or going in the gym and slamming out an hour session to get a similar autophagy effect and a mitochondrial biogenesis effect. And you've heard that term before, or you've certainly heard of mitochondria. Mitochondrial biogenesis is the making of newer, more powerful, more efficient mitochondria in the body. Many health and medical experts contend that mitochondrial health is the essence of aging gracefully, and it's the essence of health itself and vitality in the body. So if you can get your mitochondria working better or making more mitochondria, you are getting an awesome health benefit. And mitochondrial biogenesis is prompted by starving the cells of energy, thereby forcing them to work more efficiently or make more, make new mitochondria. So that's the ticket is you got to challenge these cells. It's sort of like challenging your bicep uh, to become strong and then you grow a bigger, stronger bicep. Same thing with the mitochondria. And you can do that through many pathways. You can do it through cold exposure because that is a challenge to the cells, challenging your body to uh, maintain core temperature when you uh, get out of the water and then uh, not eating and then uh, doing something that's a vigorous exercise. So there are numerous pathways. They're called redundant pathways. Dr. Casey Means uses that term, and I love that. And so the thing to be careful of here is overloading on the stress pathways to the extent that they compromise your performance and your recovery. And of course, we're not talking about a huge segment of the total population that's at risk of overdoing it with carb restriction and too much exercise. Uh, but for the appropriate uh, listener, this is a huge insight. And so uh, I'm going to repeat that often, that I am entirely 100% focused on performance and recovery in my physical fitness endeavors uh, to the point of the, the influence of my diet. So I'm not going to introduce uh, dietary stressors ever again because I do plenty of performance and recovery to stimulate mitochondrial biogenesis. And of course, I contend when you are uh, directing your, uh, your energies to fitness improvement, that has wide-ranging benefits, more wide-ranging benefits than uh, cutting back on your calories. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Okay, and guess what? Uh, that whole Ryan Baxter thing was just prompted by me looking at his name on the page and his commentary for the show was on an entirely different uh, and still extremely interesting and important subject. So uh, he says, in Primal Endurance, you and Mark drive the point home of making sure you stick to maximum aerobic function heart rate to promote optimal fat burning, reduce stress, reduce carbohydrate dependency. As I looked more into breathing during exercise, it becomes clear that another thing plays an important role 
in whether we are burning more fat or carbs during our aerobic workouts, and that is the amount of oxygen delivered to the muscle. If the muscle is not getting enough oxygen, the muscle will burn glucose rather than fat because oxygen is needed to burn fat, as we know. So if you are not delivering enough oxygen to your muscles, you can be working out at even a comfortable heart rate in the aerobic zone and burning more glucose than you should be. And of course, this uh, example is illustrated by those who are extremely unfit and metabolically unhealthy, and they will be burning glucose if they get up from the couch and uh, walk across the room, right? Because they just don't have the uh, metabolic machinery building to, to burn fat. And so how do you get more competent? How do you deliver more oxygen to the working muscles? You improve your carbon dioxide tolerance. This is a subject for an entire show. I did a show on the BRAD podcast about the insights derived from the fantastic book, uh, The Oxygen Advantage by Patrick McEwen. But if you can minimize your breathing during workouts and during everyday life, by the way, you will improve your carbon dioxide tolerance. And the more carbon dioxide you can tolerate, the more oxygen is delivered to working muscles. This is not just Brad going off on a rant. This is called the Bohr effect, which is a fundamental of chemistry, B-O-H-R. The Bohr effect contends that as you build up more carbon dioxide in the bloodstream, you will dispense more oxygen to working muscles. In contrast, if you suck in a, a whole bunch of oxygen more than you need, you will not be building up any carbon dioxide thereby minimizing the delivery of oxygen to working tissues and muscles. And so what do we do, generally speaking, in life is we overbreathe, as McCune argues, uh, especially during exercise, where customary to just open our mouths and suck in a bunch of air while we're jogging down the street or while we're going faster or going slower. It doesn't matter. We don't care. We don't think about it. I never did think about it myself. I never thought of uh, breathing as a performance tool. Uh, but this new information that's become very popular, especially with Brian McKenzie uh, forming his shiftadapt.com operation and taking people through the gearing of different breathing as they uh, increase the intensity of their exercise, all this new information is really become uh, prominent in the performances of elite athletes and getting adopted by more and more people. So uh, the short version of it, as Ryan explained a little bit of the science there, is if you can form a goal to uh, breathe through your nose only as minimally as possible at all times for the rest of your life. That is the key to leveraging the benefits of building your carbon dioxide tolerance and delivering more oxygen to working muscles. There's also all kinds of other peripheral benefits for the central nervous system. When you get good at carbon dioxide tolerance, and uh, you're more likely to stimulate parasympathetic function at rest when you're breathing through your nose only and taking efficient diaphragmatic breaths, but getting away from this over-breathing tendency, which is associated with the stress response. And think about it. When you are stressed, you are taking shallow, panting, rapid breaths. You are almost hyperventilating when you get to the extreme stress. So we know what hyperventilation is like when you're in, in a panic, but uh, down four notches from there is our everyday pattern of just rushing through life, panting, 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 taking in way more oxygen than we need, and thereby uh, minimizing our carbon dioxide tolerance. So again, this is content for a whole show. 
but it definitely plays in that if you can get better at minimize breathing during exercise, like if you can get by with taking in less air, you will A, minimize the stress impact of the workout, and B, improve performance by delivering more oxygen to the working muscles. Uh, when I listened to the entire Oxygen Advantage book two times through, I almost couldn't believe my ears. Like this guy's telling me if I breathe less, I'm going to perform better. But as I learned all the concepts and see the uh, compelling evidence out there, I have become a big devotee of minimized breathing. And I think about it all day long and especially during workouts. So um, you've heard about the perhaps heard about the shift adapt protocols where you start with um, breathing through your nose only and then you uh, the next step is uh, breathing through your nose and exhaling through your mouth and then when you're going really hard and you need maximum of course you're breathing in and out through both nose and mouth uh, aggressively so when i'm doing my sprint drills and sprint workouts what i'll do is i will start from a, a nasal breathing foundation so i'm breathing through my nose only even as I do pretty challenging drills for 10 or 15 seconds. And then when I'm done with the drill sequence, of course, I will open my mouth. I'll take a couple big breaths to get the air I need and then try to downshift quickly back to nasal breathing. So at all times, I'm taking in uh, as little oxygen rather than as much as I can. And again, just so you don't misunderstand, I'm not trying to uh, turn myself red and pass out on the side of the track. So when I'm running a full speed sprint, I'm breathing maximum oxygen that I need and then just trying to down gear, down gear as soon as I'm done. And then someday, however long that takes, five seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, I'll close my mouth again and go back to nasal breathing. So uh, I encourage you to read that book and maybe go over to the BRAD podcast and listen to my uh, highlight show talking about the insights from the Oxygen Advantage and realize that it actually can improve your performance. And uh, in a general uh, recommendation here to, to close this topic out and close the show out, uh, I would suggest uh, trying to do those nose breathing workouts, which also correlates with staying under your maximum aerobic heart rate. And it's a bit of a hassle, especially if you're not used to it. You might be spewing out a lot of uh, fluid out of your nose and getting annoyed that you can't open your mouth and just breathe normally. But over time, you'll get used to it. Your nostrils will get stronger. Your airways will get stronger. And you'll be able to uh, pedal on down the road or on the exercise bike or jog on down the trail, breathing through your nose only. And it's a wonderful feeling. And it literally minimizes the stress impact of the workout. All right. We got into some major, important, big picture topics in this show. And I really appreciate you listening. We would love to hear your feedback on the show. So if you can email podcast at bradventures.com and designate your question for the Primal Endurance Podcast, that would be great. And good luck out there. Train safely. Don't overdo it. And definitely spend some time at primalendurance.fit checking out the free mini course. And I guarantee you'll be satisfied when you enroll in the Primal Endurance Mastery course. Da -da -da -da. Hey ladies, you may have heard me talk about Gaines Wave treatment for improving male penile vascular health and sexual function, and maybe you thought, hey, what about my needs? Well, Gaines Wave has got you covered with a revolutionary new treatment protocol called Gaines Wave for her. 
As with the male Gainswave treatment, a skilled practitioner uses a handheld device to send low-intensity shock waves into your vaginal area to stimulate a healing response, promote increased blood circulation, and the growth of new blood vessels after a series of 6 to 12 very brief treatments, which are painless but extremely effective, you get real results with Gainswave reporting an 80% success rate. Some benefits. You will revitalize your intimate relationships with heightened sensation and arousal and enhance pleasure and satisfaction. Don't contemplate invasive procedures or uncomfortable medical treatments. Regain confidence and reclaim your sexuality with Gaines Wave for her. You visit the website gainswave.com, G-A-I-N-S-W-A-V-E.com slash Brad to find a practitioner in your area. You complete a series of treatments and the beneficial effects will last for a long time, especially if you eat and exercise well to promote overall vascular health. It's a tune-up for your equipment. So please visit gainswave.com slash Brad to find a practitioner in your area and take advantage of my special promo that you'll mention when you find your local practitioner. Buy six treatments and get one free. I hope you enjoyed this episode and encourage you to check out the Primal Endurance Mastery Course at primalendurance.fit. This is the ultimate online educational experience where you can learn from the world's great coaches and trainers, diet, peak performance, and recovery experts, as well as lengthy one-on-one interviews from several of the greatest endurance athletes of all time, not published anywhere else. It's a major educational experience with hundreds of videos, but you can get free access to a mini course with an ebook summary of the Primal Endurance Approach and nine step-by-step videos on how to become a Primal Endurance Athlete. This mini-course will help you develop a strong, basic understanding of this all-encompassing approach to endurance training that includes Primal-aligned eating to escape carbohydrate dependency and enhance fat metabolism, building an aerobic base with comfortably paced workouts, strategically introducing high-intensity strength and sprint workouts, emphasizing rest recovery and annual periodization, and finally cultivating an intuitive approach to training instead of the usual robotic approach of fixed weekly workout schedules. Just head over to primalendurance.fit and learn all about the course and how we can help you go faster and preserve your health while you're at it. 